Hey, everybody. What's up? I get a hey? Yeah, I'm feeling really great this morning. Uh, I've had uh, my daughter, Harper, um, all weekend just, my, just by myself. My wife, Corey, is away. Um, I have a 10-month-old. Um, by the way, if you're new, it's just really great uh, to have you. I recognize that in a city like Providence and in an area like this, um, I don't know, it's kind of a big deal dragging yourself into church, not just because it's summer in Rhode Island. Well, it is a cloudy day, so I get why some of you might have shown up. Um, no, I mean that more in terms of the, uh, the climate of our culture. Uh, I recognize that there's a lot of uh, distrust, uh, and I think it's just wonderful that I actually know a few of you today just decided to come on a whim, uh, and you're not sure how you feel about this whole Jesus thing or church thing. Uh, and so I just want to welcome you and, and let you know that we really value the things that we read in the Scripture uh, that you can just seek this can be a place where you can ask questions of truth. Um, we look at the scriptures and we see doubt and we see struggle and we see wrestling uh, and we see beauty and grace and assurance and we see journey above all else. Uh, so there are some folks here who have been walking with Jesus for a long time and there are folks here who feel really awkward around the phrase walking with Jesus. Uh, so we want to be really just attentive to, to both of you. Uh, and so I'm going to teach from the word, from the passage that we just uh, stood and read from. And, uh, and hopefully there is uh, something that would stir in your spirit uh, this morning that would convict or comfort uh, or uh, push you further into the person that we believe God created you to be. So again, just welcome to new folks. Um, I was going to tell you a story about how I'm slightly over-caffeinated, but we'll save that for next week where the same thing pretty much happens. Um, <laughs> it's been interesting, though. I have a brand new respect for, stay at home, or, um, for single parents. Uh, I, uh, I've been for the last two and a half days, Corey's been away, my wife's been away, and I've been with the 10-month-old, and normally I'm like kind of a night owl, so I'll do the sort of like later bottle feeding, and then I'll, um, I'll go to bed and then be able to like, you know, wake up closer to like 8 or 8.30, uh, where Corey is like an early riser, but I've gotten like both ends. Uh, so I'm like trying to cram and do some finish up work all the end of the week, and so I'm up till 11, 12, and foolishly just sort of forgetting that Harper, my wonderful, beautiful, amazing daughter, is going to wake up at like 5.50. Uh, so I am uh, I'm ready for you this morning in a way that's not quite that. Um, <laughs> so we have been in a letter since January, the letter of the Philippians, a guy named Paul, who uh, we believe most scholars speculate that he's in prison in Rome. We know he's in prison somewhere, but that he's in Rome, and he's writing a letter to this church that he started, uh, these people who are an, an outpost of the kingdom of God, and he uses that outpost citizen in heaven language uh, because Philippi is a city that is an outpost of Rome. It is a place not in Rome, separate from Rome, who ruled the world from like e India to, to, to Great Britain, and uh, this place, the city, was meant to uh, basically export the politics, the, uh, the social life, the vision and values of the place of Rome. So Paul, in all his brilliance, takes a lot of the Roman imperial language, right, flashbacks to high school history, and he turns it. And he says, actually, this whole uh, being an outpost of Rome, this whole being a place where you are showing and displaying all of the values of the city of Rome, I want you to be that for heaven. 
So we, we hear that, and for those of you who, who maybe have a, a slightly strange version or vision of heaven, or a very particular one involving babies and harps and clouds, just a reminder, um, this is the place where the prophet Isaiah says the lion will lay down with the lamb. So as an example, we as followers of Jesus, with all of the chaos in Syria right now, all of the chaos and violence going on in, in, uh, in Israel and with the Palestinian people, uh, we could go across the board with the outbreak of, um, of Ebola in Liberia, uh, with the, just the violence and brokenness and disease that we are to be people who are peacemakers. As a follower of Jesus, to, uh, to, to pray your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, to be, as Paul says, a citizen of heaven. For us as a church in the city of Providence to be an outpost of heaven is to be peacemakers. There's no other way, no interesting like biblical gymnastics you can really pull to separate from that reality. We are to be people of peace. And all the complexities that mean. We should be people who look like Jesus to the world. We are embodying the values. That's just one of the many values that we see when we get the picture of what heaven looks like. Reconciliation, redemption. Right? Too often this isn't the case. But the outside world, if it values peace, should go, we need to figure out how to make peace here. We need to call in the Christians. Because they're the ones who, like, this is their whole thing. We want to learn, like, what it means to actually love in this situation. We We better call in the folks who are followers of Jesus, because they're the ones working this out in local congregations and contexts like this all over the world. Now, sadly, we know that too often is not the case, or so often our faith gets co-opted by nationalism or whatever else, other idolatry. But we here at Sanctuary are trying to do our best, amen, to be an outpost of heaven to the world. So, all that said, we're coming to the end of the letter, and we've spent the last seven weeks just focused in on one verse, Philippians 4.8, talking about where our head is at. How are we doing with our thought life? All right, what's noble, what's true, what's pure, what's excellent. These are the kinds of things that we should be focused on because that's where the life is. Because that's the place where, where, where we find the life that we are created to live, where we are dialed in to what is true about the world and about the universe, which is a God of love, a relational God of love at the center of all things. So, as we've been talking about our headspace and what are the things we're focusing on, Paul then shifts one last time to kind of finish up with a thank you, which many argue this is the real point of the whole letter anyway. It's he's giving thanks. And does anyone remember why Paul's giving thanks? One of the key reasons. We, can't even, we don't need to over-spiritualize it or anything. He is psyched that being in jail, this church is doing well and doing so well that they thought of him and they traveled to help take care of his needs in prison. A quick recap. If you are in prison in the ancient Roman times, there is not like a mess hall. They are not serving um, food. Uh, likely, in most of the places that we have, I was reading up about this the other day, um, most of the examples that we have of Roman prison, or even uh, uh, kind of, uh, what's the term I'm looking for? Anyway, prison. Uh, you would have folks would need to take care of you or you wouldn't make it. You needed folks outside of prison to come and give you food and supplies because what you'd be able to scrounge up in prison would not be able to uh, allow you to survive. So Paul is excited, and at this point in the letter, he shifts and says, guys, thank you so much. So as we just read, 
I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that you, uh, that at last you renewed your concern for me. So real quick, at last, we're just going to walk through these verses real quick. Uh, so whatever it was, we don't know what the reason was why he said at last, but we know that there's been some sort of uh, reason why they have not been able to get for, to him and care for him. Uh, many speculate it was the incredible distance and journey from Philippi uh, to where he was in Rome. Uh, there could have been a number of reasons, though. Uh, also, this word concerned is a word we looked at a few weeks, or more than that, a couple months back now, phreneo, which is to think, and it's used here as concern. Uh, and the definition here is a particular disposition towards a Christ-focused pattern of thinking, feeling, and acting. In other words, there's something aligned with Jesus, the way they are thinking, the way they're feeling and acting. You renewed your phreneo. You renewed uh, your outlook towards me in the way that is like Jesus in this particular setting. So he is just so grateful. You haven't had an opportunity to show it. I am not, and here's where it shifts. So you, sh you would think you'd just be, I am so thankful. Has anyone ever given you something that you didn't really need, but it was clearly an awesome gift, and so you lie? You'd be like, oh my gosh, I totally needed that. Like inside, you're like, no, that's, that's stupid. Or, or maybe it was like, actually it was a really good thing, but you had already picked it up. Right? Like you're, you had mentioned uh, the day before to your friends that, oh man, we are just like really struggling uh, with, you know, with, with money and, and we got no food in the, in the fridge. And, and so somebody shows up and brings you a dinner like a day later, but what had happened before that morning is someone had already done it. Or you had already had something taken care of that you did need like three weeks before and then someone shows up a bit late and was like, oh, here. Right? In that moment, because you want to be nice, because you're a good, because there are a lot of really sweet, nice, gentle people here, you would go, awesome. Thank you so much. I totally needed that. It kind of takes a little bit of the enthusiasm and passion and sincerity out of the thank you if you were to be like, Thanks so much. I've actually already taken care of that. But thanks. Right? You're still genuinely thankful. This is what Paul does. And it's to the modern reader, it, it can actually throw us. So there's a lot of things going on in terms of shame culture and why he chooses to pad things. But the real point of why he says this next is fascinating. I'm not saying this. So I'm not saying thank you because I'm in need. For I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hunger, living, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all of this through him who gives me strength. Paul is so thankful he says this multiple times throughout the letters. He's just grateful. He rejoices. He drops the word rejoice constantly. He's just grateful for them and who they're becoming and what they've done. But he sort of like puts this big asterisk on it of like, thank you so much. I did not need that. So I want to unpack this a little bit. Paul says something that um, I like to call this like the parting of the Red Sea effect. What happens when we read this, at least for me, when I look at the ancient Bible, something that a lot of us don't spend a whole lot of time in, 
And we look at this and we go, oh, that's cool. This guy who seems to have written half of the New Testament found the secret of being content. We immediately take Paul and we elevate him up here. Like, yeah, he's a big deal. He's like saints and cathedrals. I think that's actually him in the stained glass over there. You know, like, we, we have this moment where it's like the Red Sea. We're like, oh, yes, I get it. Like, the Red Sea was parted once. That looks, that's great. Good for them. I'll, like, chip away at it and do my best. And then we walk away from the text. Anyone feel that a little bit? Like, a, he's literally saying, I have learned the secret of being content. I don't know what else. I mean, there's a few other things maybe that rival this in our culture, Christian or not, um, that, that like rise above that. That's why there are so many books, just like Google or go to Amazon and go contentment. The amount of books that will pop up on contentment and happiness and being settled and being at peace in your inner thought. I mean, every, this is a driving factor a driving force in most people's lives. Paul says he's learned it, and we go, that is so unrealistic. That's, I mean, that's like parting of the Red Sea stuff, and then we walk away. But we have to be honest with him. I want to take a moment and, and actually trust that we can be, if Jesus says we can do even greater things, and if Paul's saying we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us, let's take a moment just for a second and suspend disbelief and let's believe that every single human being, like every one of you, like we can all actually be content in every situation all the time forever, amen. Can we believe that just for a second? And then you can go back to totally disbelieving that and thinking I'm crazy. Is that all right? All right, sweet. So a few things to illustrate. This is not the posture of our heart. This is not the posture of the heart of Western culture. A few just points to illustrate what is probably glaringly obvious. Uh, Rockefeller, this is one of my like, all-time most popular uh, quotes uh, from Nelson Rockefeller. He says, how much money does it take to make a person happy? So he was asked this question. He reportedly answered, just a little bit more. Uh, J.C. Ryle wrote, uh, two things are said to be very rare sights in the world. One is a young man humble, and the other is an old man content. I fear this saying is only too true. Right, if we were, if, if we were going to say an amen to a negative, that would be it, right? Like, amen. This is the general, uh, I, I think, pulse of our culture. Uh, how many of you have read this book? Anyone read The Progress Paradox? No, you probably read a lot of books that have been influenced by this, or you haven't read a book in years. Um, <laughs> truth? How many people have a lot of books by their bedside and have not finished one of them? Can we have an honest moment of confession? I'm putting mine up too. Yeah, amen. All right. Here's to not finishing things. Go generation. <laughs> oh, we're the worst. <laughs> uh, this guy, Greg Easterbrook. I actually have read part of this book. <laughs> In the Western world, uh, he says, uh, he basically illustrates and shows that while life in the Western world has dramatically improved over the last several decades, the level of happiness and contentment has declined. We live in an age of discontent. And at the same time, our world does not help us with this, right? It doesn't help us with the discontented thing. It's not just like the inner posture or the inner impulse. We're bombarded with advertisements that show us how incomplete or unfulfilled we are unless we have this, that, or the other. 
and I'm not going to beat a dead horse because every pastor loves to beat this horse, but like social media, we just got to say it again because it's a reality. Like Pinterest is the devil. Okay. <laughs> right? Have I told you that? I think I've told you all this. Like Twitter, phenomenal. You can curate. You can decide. Which, even if you never tweet in your life, you can decide the info. Facebook is kind of innocuous. You can still make some. Just, Pinterest is like, here's all the stuff I want. Here's the stuff like, like where's Jason Lee? Our worship, uh, one of our worship leaders, Jason, he posted something the other day. It was like this forlorn guy sitting by a beach with like a rustic coffee, like a French press thing. And it looked like some fresh bread with some jam and a knife. And it was a perfect like, you know, I don't know, early bird Instagram filter. You know what I'm talking about? Early bird? No one rocks early bird. I, I have like something in my heart that goes to early bird. I just alienated like three-fourths of the congregation. Anyway, and it's just this like picture where you're like, oh, that's just what I want. It's where I want to be. All right, we post stuff about this. We create a culture of want of if I just had, if just a little bit more. I'm joking about it being the devil. It's just my least favorite. Uh, I had someone tell me the other day uh, about my daughter. Um, and I know they were joking, and I appreciated the sentiment, but the, you ever have someone joke with you, and you're like, that wasn't totally a joke. Someone told me the other day, it's like, man, if <laughs> we're thinking about having kids, if we, don't, if we don't have a kid who looks like Harper, I just don't know what I'm going to do. I'm going to put it right back. <laughs> now, they were joking, but, and I, 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 Harper's kind of cute. She's got like the Gerber baby cheeks or something. She'll resent us for that, you know, in 10 years. And I just thought like, man, should I like not post pictures of my, like, like this is literally creating, because I could see a twinkle in the eye of like, oh man, like that's, that's what a cute baby looks like or something. We create over and over, Right? I have friends who had to fast from social media while they were on vacation just because they needed to get away. They realized it was creating a culture of covetousness and comparison and breeding discontent. Our culture does not help with this. And this is the story from the very beginning. This is the story of Adam and Eve, of wanting, not trusting the way of God, but wanting something I cannot have. Right, we talk a lot about the beauty, the power of the story of, of the creation account of Adam and Eve isn't it is less that it, it literally happened and how we make sense of that. It's actually that it happens over and over and over again. It's true because it happens to us. We know this stuff to be true. Paul, if we're gonna talk about trusting that Paul has actually um mastered the art of being content. Paul's the kind of guy you want to learn from. Paul's the kind of guy you want to learn from because Paul has had very few reasons to be content in a worldly sense. Jail. Over and over, he has been in places of oppression and lack and in a want. This is the guy that we want to learn from. Nothing about Paul's circumstances should lead him to contentment. So let's trust Paul that he actually believed this and that this had happened. A few observations. First off, about contentment. This has not been easy for Paul. This does not come naturally 
for Paul. If we look back at the text, I know what it's been, I know what it's like to be in need and to have plenty. And in that, I have learned the secret of being content, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or want. This has been a journey for Paul. Paul has had troubles and he shared in his troubles. Paul has learned what it means to be content. This should give us hope. This has not been easy for Paul. This does not come naturally to Paul. If this had come, if we apply the like parting of the Red Sea thing, if we apply the saint thing, well, that's cool for Paul. I mean, he wrote the Bible. Clearly, he was able to pull this off. This wasn't natural. Paul had to what? it Learn. Can we all say learn? Learn. Paul had to learn this, and this should give us coat. This contentment was not something Paul attained overnight, but he learned through experiences. And because of this, he invites us to embrace for ourselves the high goal of contentment. Contentment must be learned. Contentment must be learned. Contentment must be learned. It's not just something that we can kind of hear and read. Oh, it's great for Paul and kind of just apply it or just read that one last book. It's ironic that the search for contentment in and of itself can breed deep discontentment because we just try and we try and we, try. we actually need to not just kind of intake, we actually need to begin to journey and work with it and we're going to learn what Paul is getting at in terms of where the source is of his contentment. Second thing I want to remind us of, contentment is not the same thing as happiness, excitement, or success. Third thing, contentment is not contingent on our circumstances. Philippians 4.12 outlines the humiliation, uh, the depravity, the emptiness that characterized his life. Yet at other times he had plenty and his stomach was filled. Contentment isn't just happiness and it isn't just being filled with passion all the time and being on cloud nine. And contentment has nothing to do with circumstances. And then he lands at one of the most often misquoted or at least taken out of context verses of all time. He says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I can be content in every situation. Now, the problem that my, my little sidebar here is this verse is buried in a context like anything else in the scriptures and it helps us understand the beauty and power of what it's getting at. But so often this verse is like, Man, if I just trust God enough, he's going to build his business, which is true. Like God's going to be able to give me that thing that I want. I can do all things. I can build this thing. I can, I can actually woo that girl. <laughs> I can do all things. You know, people are like, I'm going to fly. You know, it's, I've never had anyone do that, but I'm sure there's enough faith out there. But that's what get, it, we, we kind of strip it from what Paul's talking about, and we go, well, I can do anything. And, that, and it's true. No one can argue with that. Well, I mean, it, if God can do anything. Like, find me the person who believes in God. He goes like, yeah, God can't do that. But what's being talked about here is this issue of Paul saying, in every situation I can be content. In plenty and in want, I can be content. He's saying, I can be content in every situation because of Christ. Because of Jesus, no matter what, regardless I can be content. I have learned this in both plenty and want. Fourth observation, plenty and in want. 
This sermon naturally, and it was happening to me as I was thinking about it, how many of you in your head already are going to all the hard situations? The really, really broken stuff in life. That, I can even be content in that. Like, I'm all ears, Pastor. Like, I'm ready to hear what you have. Like, all right, I'm going to trust Paul for a second that he can actually, that I could be content in every bad situation. But before we get to the negative, Paul says, in what? In both. That I can be content, not just in the hard stuff, but with all the good stuff. Why would Paul say this? Think about it for a moment. Why would Paul say, hey, when things have been awesome, I've been content. I've been able to be content even there. Many have argued that that would be a much harder place usually to be content is when you have lots. That's usually when it's most difficult, when you're killing it. When things are beautiful, when you've got money in the bank. This is all sorts of new things you've got to start being discontent about. This is the way, I mean, to speak of money, this is the way money often works. The more you have, the more you want. Not just when it's hard, it's when he has stuff. This is brilliant. So one of the passages I love, Proverbs, kind of illustrates this. Uh, In Proverbs, um, uh, trust me, it's in there. It's verse 7. Two things I, I don't have the reference here. Uh, Two things I ask for, Lord. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. And give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? How many of you would be willing to pray that? I mean, it's really easy. Like, please, God, I do not want poverty. That one's easy. But I don't want riches. Do not. Because everyone in this room thinks, oh, man, but if I won the lottery, I would steward it so well. Right? I think that. I'm like, dude, I could do so much. I would give away so much. I would help these people. You know, like I would be like king philanthropist. And Paul's, I mean, the writer in Proverbs is like, that's too much. That's too much temptation. Right? I mean, we see later on in the New Testament with Jesus, it's like narrow. I mean, the the gate is tough for, for, for the wealthy. It's hard for them to enter the kingdom of God. It's hard for them to actually get it. Paul is like, yeah, yeah, the bad stuff, of course, of course. We'll get to that in plenty. I've learned to be content even in having a lot. How many of you, that would actually fit your situation much more? I'm going to assume, because most of you are able to drive here, because most of you have a roof over your head, because probably a healthy chunk of you are paying your bills, because most of you are able to go out for you know, a night or two and grab a, a, some food and a drink. Most of you are able to provide for your family. Most folks in this room are not dealing with poverty, is my assumption. We actually quickly become lumped in the, well, I'm actually doing okay and I am so discontent. Now, in all of this, there's something else going on that Paul's reacting to, and Paul's using language. There's this uh, philosophical belief, and I'll spare you a long philosophical lecture, but this is actually really important to understand what's going on. Paul uh, is, uh, is influenced. In fact, many have commented on this letter. He uses a lot of Stoic language. So there's this uh, philosophy, this way of thinking called Stoicism. If you ever like, heard call, you call, 
if you've ever heard someone call someone else a stoic person, somebody who's just, you know, very sort of still and composed. Stoicism was a way of thinking that dominated um, the ancient world at this time. It was all about inner contentment. No matter what's happening on the outside, you have peace. So you would engage various practices, meditations, things like that, to kind of get in tune with the universe and block out all the negativity, man. Like, you would, you would just, th- this is your way of uh, a, a high value is contentment. And, and the way in which you engage the world was to kind of keep all the negativity out so that you could kind of control your own inner peace. You won't have to worry. Very similar to modern-day Buddhism. Disconnect. I want to disconnect so that I can have a sort of peace. Uh, the big thing would be like letting go of your desires and sort of your passions. Um, not just Buddhism, I would say like hipster culture would be the other equivalent of this. Um, you know, like I, I don't need to really be passionate or driven in that way. I can just hang out and live with a bunch of dudes in a house and we can smoke a little bit and just chill and let the world go, man, because there's too much to worry about. Man, you have to insert the word man every time you talk about stoicism in modern culture. The bottom line is it was about self-sufficiency. It was all about, if you could wrap up stoicism, which is a, sort of a difficult task, but just into one sort of like phrase, it would just be that, self-sufficiency. You have the resources inside of you to just be at peace. And so much of it had to do with denial of passions and kind of creating sort of an inner coping mechanism. Cultivating, one writer says this, cultivating inner serenity so the outside stuff won't bother you. Uh, and uh, here's an example. Early 2nd century AD philosopher um, named Epictus says, he is a wise man who does not grieve for the things which he has not, but rejoices for those which he has. Um, detachment was the goal. Uh, one example, uh, I was talking to a friend of mine recently. I don't know if she's here or not, but uh, we were talking about uh, some practices that she wanted to get involved in. And um, she's sort of recently really gotten just excited and engaged about her faith. And we were talking about um, grieving uh, and how uh, she can help with people who are in grief. Just really, really beautiful sorts of things. And talking about like when someone hits that place of grief, how do I care for them? And she's looking into different practices and yoga and things like that that can really help in creating a place and a safe place for people to come and to grieve in our culture. And without any prompting from me, she just sort of says, here's, here's some of the, the, one of the problems that I'm really struggling with. Like, to, what, as I understand my Christian faith, and I understand that there's just a whole lot that can't be, like, like um, taken care of. I don't have the resources inside of me to take care of the grief. And so, so often in, in the culture that she's in and in the world that she's in trying to develop these programs, um, these aren't like Christian programs or anything, it's all geared around you can find the resources inside to deal with your grief. And she was telling me that the problem with this is that what happens when you can't find the resources? Because it happens all the time. You either kind of numb yourself for a bit, you sort of white knuckle and push your way through so you don't feel grief, but at some point, she's like, most people end up discovering that they grieve. You do not have the resources inside of yourself. You don't have the resources. And she is like kind of identifying this, this really like missing piece. That I, 
I, I don't, I'm trying to figure out how do I do this well in a way that, that actually helps and engages people and do it um, detached from leaning on something and caring about something outside of yourself to actually heal you. This kind of illustrates the disconnect between the Stoic worldview and where Paul is going. For the Stoics, contentment was achieved as the individual became indifferent to their surroundings and mustered the strength internally. So, the way you end this teaching, for me, like if we get to, okay, 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 we got the context. We got some, okay, it's not about happiness. All right, in all circumstances, I get it. Like when it comes to wealth, yeah, we can be discontented there much easier. Okay, okay, so the secret, Paul just says, like every good Sunday school answer you've ever, ever had to give is just Jesus. It's, it's Jesus. It's Christ who strengthens me. The secret of contentment for Paul has a name. The secret has a name. Contentment comes not from what we have, but whom we have. Contentment does not come from what we have, but whom we have. If we look back at this letter, we see like the thread leading up to this point. Contentment is living in Jesus, the sure hope. In uh, chapter 1, 19 to 20, they have an an unfailing promise with God in chapter 2. In chapter 3, the Savior will come again. There's this great hope. Paul hits this in other places. He says in 2 Corinthians, God's grace is sufficient. It's enough. The strength that Paul learned is available to every believer to face every humiliation, every setback as well as all of the brilliant and beautiful and good gifts this world has to offer. Paul says the secret of being content, of being at rest in everything, is knowing Jesus. I want to humbly submit to you and I'm not just talking like to you, I, I, I talk to myself with this, that the reason why internally or externally we don't all go, amen, yes, Jesus, you're right, I've forgotten again, or I remember but I'm reminded, is because there is a disconnect with knowing Jesus and talking about Jesus in arriving at a set of ideas that we adhere to for the most part to guide our moral life and knowing Jesus to being in relationship with the God who has revealed himself as love, who's shown us where our identity lies, who has diffused all of the hurt of brokenness and evil and death contentment comes not from what we have but whom we have and if we don't have him if we are not one with him then then this is an interesting intellectual exercise and everybody in this room who showed up hoping I was going to give like eight easy steps to being content just got really disappointed like you got bummed out 
Because when you read, like literally we were going through this study with a couple of leaders and somebody asked, wait, what is the secret? Hold on, I missed it. Like they'd read this a ton of times. Like, wait, what is the, I learned the secret of being content. And it's like, I can do all things through Christ. Wait, he doesn't say this. It's just, it's just Jesus. It's like, I've had a ton of stuff and it's been amazing. And I've learned to be content when I have a lot of stuff. And I've had nothing. I've been in jail. I've been at the lowest of the low. It's like, well, I, I just have an understanding of what's going on. I have an understanding of who Jesus is, of what he's done for me, of what he's doing in the world. I actually have a constant understanding that every time discontentment like, like, uh, raises its ugly head, it just gets crushed back down. And he's learned this because it's really hard because we can't anticipate every situation. We can't anticipate the fact that, that, that we're going to have a teenage like, daughter or son who's going to rebel and, 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 and walk away and it's going to be really difficult. We can't anticipate the fact that dad's going to die prematurely. We can't, we can't anticipate the fact that our parents could reject us. We can't anticipate the fact that, that the job didn't go through and I don't know what to do now. We, with the depression that's coming up over and over again, I don't know what to, we can't anticipate that. Paul goes, as I've walked through life, as I've walked through life and seen the awful situations that have happened, the reality of brokenness in the world, both the stupid things I've done, Paul was killing Christians, and the stupid things that other people have done, He's been oppressed and thrown in jail for declaring that Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. He's like, I learned it, man. I'm learning it. I always, lo- I love to think of Paul as just, as just this like excite. I know we, we uh, a lot of scholars uh, think he's short and sort of an ugly fella. Truly, There's, through a number of reasons why they come up with this. Half the time, I'm like, really? You got that from that? Let's just go with with a bunch of scholars like short, kind of kind of wily guy. And I just think of Paul just being like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I went through this. And yeah, I don't know. I, for some reason, it's like hunchback. Paul's a hunchback now. I don't know how that just happened. But hunchback Paul. <laughs> He's like my great, he writes to the Corinthians, grace is sufficient. His grace is sufficient. Like, guys, trust me. I have learned the secret. He actually uses cult language of that time. That's like the word he, that's a whole other sermon. It's fascinating. He takes more of this like kind of secret language that was being talked about. And it's like, guys, I've learned the secret. Jesus. Like literally to be in relationship, to know what is happening in the world, to know what is happening in my heart if I would just allow this. Because the problem here is we don't treat, at least I think the problem is for us right here and now. We do not treat discontentment like a sin. And I, I humbly submit to you that it's a sin. To be discontent is just sinful. And here's why. Because in that moment of discontentment, we are not trusting that Jesus is enough. In that moment that we are discontented, we are not trusting that Jesus is enough. Now this is not an invitation for you to feel guilt and shame right now. Can I just say that? Like, just clear the air real quick for those of you who are new. And you're like, wait, what church did I walk into just now? No, 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 we as followers of Jesus believe we are loved exactly where we are in all of our doubts and all of our questions and all the ways we've screwed everything up. But right there in that moment, we have a God who loves us way too much to let us stay right there. And so in that moment, when we go, I am discontented because I do not trust that Jesus is enough. There is not um, uh, ridicule. There is not um, um, shame. There is an invitation Right in that moment, there's an invitation from God. Are you going to trust me that I am enough? Trust me that I am enough for you. It doesn't mean like trust me, like I'm just going to deliver the check that you've been asking for. 
though it can happen. It doesn't mean just like trust me because I'm, I'm going to make everything great and flowery. No, no, no. It's that you can make dumb decisions. I had this conversation with somebody else the other day. They were kind of quoting around this verse and sort of being like, well, I, I trust God's going to get me through this. So I'm just going to just hang out and wait. No! Hanging out and waiting was what was doing this person in. Like they were literally destroying themselves. And they're like, yeah, but God, I trust God. No, stop. Get better. You can do this. God has given you the strength and skills to do this. So this isn't an invitation to just sit back. It's an invitation that as we go through life and as we look towards the person of Jesus, as we look to fulfill the mission that God has for us, as we go, that we are aware of a God who is for us and we are aware of the great sin of discontentment. A few things to, to kind of close, some things that are in your, uh, in your bulletin. I want these things to maybe just to remember this week. One, Contentment means you know and believe that God has your back. When we are discontent, we often believe that we are alone fighting for ourselves. The author of Hebrews says, uh, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Jesus will never leave you or forsake you. If you feel forsaken, it ain't Jesus contentment. Man, I'm getting all preachy. What is going on? I love this. Guys, this is so huge. Like, this is so unbelievably powerful. Because again, we're still like suspending our disbelief, right? We still actually believe that every single one of us can be content. We can begin this process of learning if we haven't forever. We can be content in every situation, right? We're still there. We haven't, we haven't gone back to like our realism. We can be content in every situation. So you got to believe that God has your back. Two, you know and believe that God loves you. He's offered you grace. What we do here at this table with communion, what churches all around the world this morning are doing, is they take the bread and they dip it in the cup and they're reminded that we are loved. We are loved, we are loved, we are loved. A God who has given himself for us. Three, that we know and believe that God will meet our every need. God, we know and trust that God will meet our needs. In a world of evil and brokenness and other choices that people have done, even then God will work all things together for his good. Now, not necessarily the needs that we think we have, but the needs that are most important to God. Sometimes we get our understanding of our needs mixed up with God's understanding. It's a separate sermon. Lastly, you know and believe that God is enough. There's nothing on this earth that can even come close to giving you lasting satisfaction. And you just have to trust that. We need to stop comparing what we have or don't have to those around us. When we fall into comparison, we get cheap answers or fixes to what we think we can fix. And we think we can fix our discontentment. And we cannot do that. We need to believe that God is enough we need to remember in all of these things that the writer Hebrews tells us that Jesus has endured everything that we've endured. So whatever, like, if you have a moment right now where you're kind of like, yeah, but yeah, but Jesus doesn't know this, go and read Hebrews 4.15. We can all be reminded that, yes, we have a God who can sympathize, a God who knows what it's like to be rejected, a God who knows what it's like to experience shame and loss. We have a God 
who, who, who showed, who came to earth, who laid in that, in that crib helpless and crying, and a God who wept when his friend Lazarus died. It's one of my favorite verses, just Jesus wept. That's the kind of God we have. He knows what you have been through and are going through, not in some divine discontented way, in a real, honest way. So if all this is true, we have to approach God, the throne of God, with grace and confidence. We can only be content because God is who he says he is, because of who he is and what he's done. Our identity, our worth, and our hope rests only in him. Before I close, I want to talk about books that I read on vacation, and I want to talk about um, one of the Ten Commandments. One, um, when I go away on vacation, uh, I really love to either watch like really stupid shows. I, actually, this has bled into the rest of my life. I just love to watch shows that are not going to put me through emotional turmoil. <clears throat> I used to love really dark and depressing art and film and music. I, I still like love it and appreciate it. But honestly, my life has gotten so heavy in general with other just waking up more and more to the realities of brokenness. I'd like entertainment to be more mm, entertainment. So uh, sometimes I do this with books. Uh, and I heard this pastor, Richard, or, uh, Reverend Mao, talk about this too. And, uh, and I do this with film. I don't know if he does this with film. But I, I want to make sure, and you can do this really easily, that the film, like all the main characters in the film or in the book, like everything goes okay. I don't want to know like the details. But it's like Hunger Games was one of the ones I did this with. I'm like, is this all going to work out? Or is this going to be one of those, like, and everybody who is loved dies, but it's, like, beautiful because I, like, I want to know. And then once I know, then I can go back and get wrapped up in the story. Okay? This is just for me, entertainment. I don't know why I do it. All right? So it's like, once I know that, all right, they're going to work out. Everything's going to be cool. Thomas Crown Affair. Almost famous. Any of these movies ring any bells? Like, they're sort of like, they're, they're like artistic and they have some suspense and some drama, but like everything's pretty much cool. Like, Oceans movies. You know what I'm talking about? Oceans 11, right? Everyone familiar with the Oceans movies? They're like my archetype of the movies nowadays that I just love because they're just like, whew, easy. There's going to be drama, but you know George Clooney and Brad Pitt are going to win in the end, right? <coughs> oh, I love those guys. Buds, bros. I skim to ascertain these few things. I can get through the rest of the book because I know what's at the end. I can get through the book because my life is so stressful. I go away. I just want something that's a little, like, just easy. Something that's going to entertain me. Just rest in. But I I can get through it. I can get through any bit of drama in the 400 pages. I can get through drama in the hour and a half film. I can get through all the tough stuff because I know how it's going to end. That is the hope that we have in Jesus. You can get through all of it because we know how it ends. To know Jesus, to not fall into the sin of discontentment, is to trust that the moral arc of the universe bends towards justice. We've heard that phrase a lot. A lot of folks who are not Christians and not religious use it all the time, but it is a deeply Christian phrase. 
Because if you believe this is all random and chance, then that phrase makes no sense at all. We actually believe that everything will be put back into its right place. We actually believe that reconciliation will win the day. We actually believe that love will triumph over everything. That Jesus will wipe every tear from the eye. That everyone will bow down and worship. So when he says, when Paul says, I've learned the secret of being content. Thank you. I've learned the secret of being content. It's knowing Jesus. I can do all things through Christ. I mean, this is a part of that. Which leads me to the Ten Commandments, naturally. If you are discontented, you want more of the things of the world. And this is an attitude that the Bible calls covetousness. I don't want covet recently. Covetousness leads to all sorts of other sins. Along with pride, it's sort of one of those root sins. So if we're going to be connected with the God of life, if we're going to be holy as God is holy, if we're going to step into the people that we are created to be, we must pursue contentment and push away covetousness. There's only one commandment in the Ten Commandments that is repeated twice. Only one. And that is a very Jewish way. Right now, when we want to emphasize something, right, we put an exclamation point. <coughs> we, we yell. And then we lose our voice. In, uh, in ancient Jewish culture, you would repeat something. So the only commandment that's repeated in Exodus 20, where it lists the commandments, is the one to not covet it. And unlike the first nine, the tenth is not outwardly observable. Stay with me for one last second. All of the other commandments are observable. You can see if someone is following them. You can see if someone murders. It is usually fairly obvious. You go down the list, you can, you can, you can measure it. The last one, covetous, to, you shall not covet, is, uh, is not one you can actually see. The rabbis say, many rabbis say that the tenth is not just a command. It's not just a command to not covet. It's the reward for following the first nine. It's actually kind of a reward. By living for God, by being in tune with God, by being aware and awake and dialed into the God of the universe, you won't want anyone else's life. You won't eat. It's the reward. If I'm living the way of Jesus... If I'm in tune with the God where I get all of my identity from, all of my, like, every ounce of rest, I know that even through hardship and through, through winds, everything is going to get put back together, that I have a God who will not forsake me, who loves me, is with me, you won't ever covet. How could you covet? I leave you with that as we come to the communion table. Because we need to be people who are comfortable being the people that God created us to be. Jesus is where contentment is found because he alone gives us and shows us our identity. This journey that Paul is on to learn the way of contentment is one of actively coming back 
to the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. So to be people, to be people who do not want someone else's life, who want the reward of the last commandment, that why, how could I even covet anybody if I have my rest here? This for us at Sanctuary and for churches everywhere is where we actually find our grounding. It's the, it's the ultimate picture of love. It's laying down your life for someone. And this is the God of the universe laying down his life for us. So as the, the band begins to play and, and we come forward or, or head back to take communion, these four things that are in your bulletin, let us take some time to actually process them as we come to the table and are reminded of the God who not only loves us and is for us, but is working all things together for his purposes, for good and beauty. That in this moment, we can actually trust, we can be content in all things. What is the thing that is causing the most discontentment in your life right now? Name it. Even if you got like a hundred of them, just name one. Take a hold of it and go, God, what is the place where I am coveting this or I am, I am so discontent in this area because of, and say, oh, I, I don't, God, I want to trust that you're enough. That you, I can rest here in you. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, help. Help, Lord, my brothers and sisters who are at their end. Help my brothers and sisters who have plenty, who are on the mountaintop. May we commit here and now as we come to the table. to continue to learn what it is to be content by being lost and wrapped up and taken hold of, Lord, in you. As we take the bread and we dip it in the cup, as we acknowledge your body broken and blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins, for the healing of the world, May we recognize in a new and profound and mysterious way that you are enough. That you are enough. You are enough through the divorce. You are enough through the loss. You are enough through the guilt. You are enough through the wealth. You are enough through the good times, you are enough through things working out. In your name, Lord, we pray. Amen.